Today, you know, is Mother's Day, right? It's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Um, Did you know in 1914, Woodrow Wilson signed a proclamation designating Mother's Day the second Sunday in May to be a national holiday for mothers? Uh, But do you know uh, who was the big advocate for Mother's Day? Does anybody know? If, If you know, shout it out loud and proud. Crickets. Anna Jarvis... Okay, Anna Jarvis was the one who championed the idea of Mother's Day first in 1908 was the actual celebration. But did you probably, well, if you don't know Anna Jarvis, you don't also know that she never had any children herself. Uh, or that her mom actually had the original idea of Mother's Day, and it wasn't to honor moms, but it was actually a service day. She wanted moms who were more fortunate to help moms who were less fortunate. That was uh, Anna Jarvis's mother's vision. Recently, I met with a group of pastors, and one of them asked, are you doing anything for Mother's Day? And another one said, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if we're going to do that. I know, I know where that sentiment's coming from because uh, there are many, uh, it, it's like many holidays where it's a source of joy and a sor- uh, for some and a source of sorrow for others. Um, so several weren't planning on doing it uh, while... Um, Infertility, miscarriage, death of a child, rebellious children, grown children not walking with the Lord or remembering her own uh, are that's joyous for some. The solution is not to talk to those who are experiencing it with joy and walk with those who are experiencing it with sorrow. And above all else, we should pray. With that in mind, uh, would you please bow your heads with me? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There is none like you in all of heaven and earth. Be glorified in our hearts, through our hands, on our lips. Be glorified both in this place and throughout the world. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we think about how you have provided for us our daily bread. One of the great things that you have provided for us are our own mothers. We thank you for our moms and for their sacrifice on our behalf. For the women in this congregation, we ask for your blessing. Bless future moms. Strengthen those with little ones. Give wisdom to moms whose children are grown up or have grown up and have more complicated needs. We pray for your love and compassion on those who have not been able to conceive, those who have children with significant challenges those with children who have passed away. We know that all things are in your hands, and we trust you with all of our circumstances. Thank you, God, also for spiritual moms, those who have invested spiritually in the lives of others. We pray that you would increase their joy and bless their work. Help us to find ways to encourage those who are blessing others. Now, Father, as we open your word to the book of Hebrews, we ask that you would open our eyes to who you are and who you have called us to be. Pray that you would speak to us through your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, last week, we're going to go down to this thing if we can. How does this thing work? I guess we're not going down. Uh, Last week, we began our message by, or I began our message by sharing a vivid dream that I had. Were any of you here? You hear my dream? Yeah, a few, a few of you. Um, 
I had a, in my dream was a, a shadowy tree, a scary creature, and a, a light in my phone that wouldn't start. But don't worry, no dreams last night. Uh, we won't start with dreams, at least none that I can remember. Uh, but what I described last week was a spiritual battle, one by the name of Jesus. Uh, there is power in the name of Jesus because there is power in the blood of Jesus. Um, do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Uh, but if we don't live our lives according to the name of Jesus, then we are living our lives only as a shadow of the reality that God intends for us. And the title of today's message and the question all of us should ask ourselves is this, why live a shadow life? Why live a shadow life? Not, why not live the real life that God intends for us. My hope is that we might better understand the future that God has for us, and especially the means by which we receive it. Our passage today is Hebrews 10, uh, 1 through 18, uh, from which we'll learn what is a shadow, what is real, and why it matters. What is a shadow, what is real, and why it really matters. Uh, so what is a shadow? Well, Hebrews 10, 1 says that, that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So the law is a shadow. Anybody know which law we're talking about? Are we talking about the traffic laws or the, the laws of the state of Illinois or something else like that? What law are we talking about? Anybody? The law of... I heard it starts with an M, ends with an S. Moses. Moses. All right. We're talking about the law of Moses. All right, so the law is a shadow of what is to come, not the realities in itself. And so to remind ourselves about the law of Moses at Mount Sinai, not Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai, <laughs> God offered the people that he had saved a covenant. Would you like to enter into a covenant with me, says God to his people? And the people responded. All of this is recorded in Exodus 19, 5 through 8. Here's what God said. Now, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, remember this is the law, but it's also a covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, you are to speak to the Israelites. Moses goes down, speaks with the Israelites, uh, says Moses went back, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them the words the Lord had commanded him to speak, and here is the people's answer. In Exodus 19, 8, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So the Moses, I think the people did didn't work to this covenant, and, uh, and God entered into a covenant, the covenant of the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, and God came above the mountain in a, the form of a dense cloud. The people were told to consecrate themselves. Limits were established around the mountain to let the people know that God is holy. You can't just come up on the mountain. Lightning and thunder, billows of smoke. It's like a reversed volcano coming down. That's what was taking place on the mountain. And God said, Moses, come on up. And Moses went up into the mountain, and there he received the Ten Commandments, 
and there he received the 613 laws. You know, it's said that a pomegranate has 613 seeds, like the 613 laws of the Torah. And so the portion of the law that we are referring to here, especially in Hebrews 10.1, is the portion of the law that deals with the sacrificial system. Sacrificial system was established in the law because God knew that when the people responded and said, yes, we'll do everything you said, that they weren't going to do everything that he said. And that when the people didn't do everything that he said, the penalty for that is death. And so God established it that the people are going to transgress over his law that an animal would die on their behalf. And so the sacrificial system was established and this idea of substitutionary atonement at the same time. Now, the problem with this, the first problem with this law, this Old Testament law, is it was only a shadow of the reality that was to come. Here's the second problem, still in Hebrews 10.1. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Can't make them perfect. First problem, the law given to Moses, is that it's only a shadow. The second problem is that it could not make perfect those who draw near to worship. The old system offered blood of bulls and goats as a sacrifice, but the system was endless and never brought about the perfection and completeness. Hebrews 10.2, otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? Wouldn't they have stopped doing this if, if it actually worked? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. The fact that those blood sacrifices had to be continually offered was proof that those sacrifices do not cleanse the conscience. In fact, Old Testament sacrifices do quite the opposite from cleansing the conscience. They are actually an annual reminder of sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so the third problem with this old system is that it is impossible under the old covenant, the old law, the old sacrificial system to take away sin. So the problems are the law was a shadow. It could never make... Times we think of us without sin. That's necessary for the is for the restoration of law could not restore the relationship with God. Couldn't do it. Because it could never take away sin, and therefore it was a shadow of the reality to come. It was only a signpost along the way saying, look this way, there's going to be a new covenant, a better covenant to come. There's going to be a real covenant. So that is what is a shadow. What's real? Well, Jesus is real, and so is the covenant made in his blood. So in Hebrews 10.5, the author of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 40. So this is scripture quoting scripture. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. And if you're to look into scripture, uh, many times God says this. He required sacrifice and offering, but it's not what ultimately satisfies him. 
And then he adds, and this part is not in Psalm 40, but a body you prepared for me. Back to the psalm. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Burnt offerings and sin offerings are inadequate, shadowy sorts of things. I think there's a reason why a body you prepared for me is in the center of these other two ideas, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. What is God pleased with? But a body you prepared for me. So here's the point. The Old Testament sacrifices were inadequate and thus the need for the fleshly body of Christ. Uh, We're speaking of Advent here. Uh, We're speaking of the incarnation, the the baby conceived in the womb of Mary and born in a manger, a body you prepared for me. The the chief reason, there are other reasons, but the, the main reason Jesus had to have a body was because we needed him to have one. Jesus had to have a fleshly body. That body was prepared not only for Jesus' life so he could teach us and we could understand who he was so he could live a sinless life, but also for his death, which was the only perfect sacrifice for sin and which the old covenant pointed to. In one sense, we might say that Jesus was born to set us free from the shadows, That's why his first message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Heaven was near because Jesus was here. Jesus became reality for us to help us escape our shadowy lives. So Hebrews 10, 7, quoting Psalm 40 on the lips of Jesus, Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. So, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, not only because he had a fleshly body, and not only because he was the God-man, not only because of his divinity and his humanity, but also because he freely and willingly was obedient to God the Father. Who does that? Who is, is obedient to God the Father even to death? It's the whole reason we have a sin problem is disobedience to God. And yet Jesus willingly obeyed God his Father even to death. Hebrews 10.8 First he said, Sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So Hebrews uh, 10, 8-9 notes that although these sacrifices and offerings were prescribed by the law and established at Sinai and handed down from Moses, they were not what God desired. They only pointed to what God desired. God was not pleased with this Old Testament sacrificial system, but he established it so we could see what it pointed to was the perfect sacrifice in Jesus. Psalm 40 indicates that um, what made Jesus perfect for the task, perfect sacrifice, perfect high priest, was not only that he was incarnate as man, 
but also a subjection to the Father's will, his willingness to obey, free will following divine will. And this is what replaced the law on Sinai. Not only so, but Jesus' will submitted to the Father is what makes us sanctified, holy, and pleasing to God, the one-time offering of the body prepared for, um, for Jesus by God the So um, God and told not to do one thing, and the only reason they're told not to do one thing is so that they might have free will to disobey God, and they did. But where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus succeeded. And so there are a couple places in Scripture that talk about Jesus as the second Adam. Jesus, the, the one that actually did what was right, willingly. Now, he, of course, was the God-man, but he also had free will. And these two things made it possible for that sacrifice to be efficacious for us, effective for us. So what's real? Well, Jesus is real, and the covenant made in his blood is real. And compared to these, the old is just a shadow, but Jesus' reality, Jesus is reality, his sacrifice is perfect because it's an incarnation and because of his free will. Well, we're sort of setting the stage here, and you might say, well, why does this really matter? There's an Old Testament sacrificial system. I have not killed a goat or a bull in my backyard yet. And I'm not sure why it matters that Jesus died for me. Why does it matter? Uh, We say Jesus died to take away my sin. Why does that matter? Well, I I think that gets explained in the rest of this passage here. Hebrews 10, uh, 11 through 14 answers with a comparison. So on the one hand, we have Hebrews 10, 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again, offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So in the first case, we have every priest who stood. Now the word stand is important here because because the priest stood, they never sat down because they were continuing to do the work day after day. The work was never done. Year after year, priest after priest, this kept happening over and over again. Some say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. If so, this seems like insanity. Same sacrifices, same results, can never take away sin. It wasn't working out. Now, on the other hand, we have Hebrews 10, 12 through 14. But when this priest, one priest, had offered for all time the sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. So on this other case, we have Jesus who offered how many sacrifices? One sacrifice, one sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin, whereas in the old system, it was year after year, priest after priest, animal after animal, a a river of blood. It was never enough. 
And in this case, we have one sacrifice, willingly given. And when Jesus had done, even though, and it's eternal, he sat down at the right hand of God. Where do you think Jesus is right now? Jesus is at the right hand of God. His work, as far as this offering goes, is complete. It's a completed action. His work on our behalf is already done. Nothing more need be done. It's a, it's a done deal. And he's waiting. What's he waiting for? Well, he's waiting for the time when his enemies will be made his footstool. This is quoting Psalm 110, and it refers to a future time of judgment. Jesus is our king. Jesus, Jesus is the righteous judge. But the throne of the king is also the throne of the priest. Now, Hebrews 10.14, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Remember the word perfect? We brought it up earlier. Could the old system perfect us? And what does it mean to be perfected? Could the old system bring us into a right relationship with God? No, it couldn't. Couldn't do it. Why? Because it wasn't effective. It didn't take away sin. It didn't do what we needed to be. Remember the limits around the mountain? That's because God's holy and we're not. In order to go up the mountain, one had to be sinless. In order to come into God's presence, our sin needs to be atoned for somehow. And that's what Jesus did for us. The Holy Spirit also gets in on the action here. So, so far we have Jesus' voice, if you read this scripture uh, speaking. But now we have the Holy Spirit who also testifies to us about this. Here's his testimony. First, he says... This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Their sinless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So the Holy Spirit is introduced in here and he said, the new reality is this. Before it was shadows. But quoting Jeremiah and, and, and kind of casting vision for the future, what it's going to look like, you're not going to have 10 commandments inscribed on stone, nor will you have 613 laws. But everything that you need will be on your heart and in your mind. You'll naturally do what God wants you to do. Your, your will, your human will, will willingly want to comply with the divine will. That will be your natural focus, your natural inclination. Right now, our natural inclination oftentimes is not to do was in accordance with God's will. But the future is that it will be. Now, what Jesus has done for us has already been done. It has already been sacrificed. The great struggles that sometimes people have when they enter into this Christian walk is they, they always hang out in this spot 
of the Old Covenant. I know we don't do the Mosaic Covenant too much, but we kind of do it in a way. that We hang out in a spot where shame over sin, uh, feeling the weight of sin and guilt, and all of that's unrelieved weighs on us. Because we're not accepting the fact that the blood of Christ covers it. The blood of Christ is a one-time sacrifice. And so positionally, we are moved from guilty to not guilty. That's what's taken place in this great exchange. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that. To ask him to be your savior, to forgive your sins. One of the, one of the great uh, criticisms of Christianity is, you know, how can you be forgiven when you're still a stinking sinner? Right? And which one of us can say we haven't sinned or don't continue to sin? We still blow it. So what's going on here? Well, positionally, when we give our lives over to Christ, we are forgiven. But the work of sanctification, of becoming increasingly holy, continues. And so we don't, we don't say, well, I'm forgiven, so I'll do whatever the heck I want. Got that fire insurance, I, you know, I'm not going to be going to hell, so I'll just do whatever I want. No, if we've been forgiven, if we've given our life over to Christ, we want to do God's will. It's been changed in us, but we're still sort of in the, in the cleanup process, the, the process of becoming increasingly holy. That's the process called sanctification. So as a Christian, as someone who's put their faith in Christ, we need to just say, man, I, you know, say I just blew it. I just blew it. I messed up. I know that the blood of Christ covers that. Thank you, Jesus, for that. But also, God, I don't want to be in the spot. I want to keep on doing this. I desire to do your will, my God. I want to, just like Psalm 40. I want to do your will, my God. I know I may fall down again. I trust in the blood of Jesus to cover all of that. But because of what Christ has done for me, I am seeking him, I am pursuing him, I am loving him, I'm going after him. And I am trusting him that the reality that he has for me is greater than anything I could ever imagine. C.S. Lewis said, hell is a state of mind. He never said a truer word, and every state of mind left to itself, every shutting down of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is in the end hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. For all that can be shaken will be shaken, and only the unshakable remains. We have no idea about the reality of what God has for us. But what is imprisoning us and keeping us from that reality and uses against us things that are untrue. And what we need to believe, if you have felt shame or fear or guilt and you're in that spot, we need to believe that Jesus' blood covers that. It's a finished work. And we also need to believe that Jesus his plan, his trajectory, his telos, the completion, the perfection, is going to be perfection. It's not going to be continuing in our sin. 
In the end, we will be perfect without sin, and in the end, we'll be in perfect relationship with God. That's what he wants for us. So if today you have heard his voice, I encourage you, do not harden your hearts. God wants for each of us to have a relationship with Christ and to live in the reality that Jesus has purchased for us. Please bow your heads with me. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, which is powerful and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword. God, we pray that your word would work upon our hearts. If any have not put their faith in Jesus and have been waiting, pray for the prompting of your Holy Spirit. If that's you, I pray that you would do so now. If any of us have been living in a place of guilt and shame, unrelieved, we felt like we just keep on blowing it. Keep on blowing it. Keep on blowing it. I'm getting tired of hearing my own voice. Keep on blowing it. Let us have the assurance of faith, knowing that Jesus died for our sins. And because of our love for Jesus of doing that, that we would seek and pursue personal holiness ourselves, being willing to undergo the self-discipline necessary, being willing to admit our fault, to ask forgiveness, to seek restoration, to pursue holiness, that we would do that for the love of Christ. It's not for us to become acceptable to Jesus, but because of Jesus, we are acceptable to God. We pray these things trusting you in the name of Jesus. Amen.